excited about digging into this passage with you this morning. Let me set it up with this illustration. If you ever have a chance to go to Israel, I'll tell you in a minute, you might actually have a chance to go to Israel, but if you ever have a chance to go to Israel, you really should. One of the wonderful things that you will see when you go to Israel uh, is an old boat that was dug up in the mid-1980s, and don't put the picture of it up yet. There it is. Leave it up, leave it up. Now we're back to the snowy trees. That's fine. Okay, there we go. Uh, let me tell you the story about this boat so you can understand it. It doesn't look like much in the picture. You know, It's just the ruins of the hull of an old boat. Well, in 1986, the, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake, had receded. It was a big drought. And so there was a lot of exposed um, ground that typically was covered by the water. And there were some young men, kind of uh, early 20s, that lived in the kind of the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, was the, the very area that Jesus did a lot of his ministry up near Capernaum and some other towns right around there where Peter and others would have been from. And 1986, they were kind of out digging among the muck and the dirt of this exposed lake, and they saw an outline that looked a little bit like a boat. They started digging around, and they, sure enough, they found this is a boat buried under the mud. Now, they did something very smart. They stopped digging, and they called the Antiquities Authority, the Jewish Antiquities Authority, and they came, and they did a proper excavation. The reason that was so important is when they started pulling the mud away from this boat, they found that the exposed wood crumbled almost instantly when it wasn't under the mud. In fact, it had the consistency of wet cardboard, so you can imagine that. So they knew they were dealing with something very, very old. So they, they took pains and, and special procedures. So they encased it in this, this foam, and then they were able to pull it out, kind of this big foam um, uh, content, what they did, and they were able to float it to the shore. Then they pulled the foam away. They submerged it in this chemical compound to, uh, to keep it from uh, disintegrating. So it was submerged now, not in water, but in special chemicals that would kind of help to preserve it. They eventually, after 12 years of it soaking in this waxy substance, they were able to pull it out and, and dry it, and that's what you see today. And the reason they had to take all that time is so it wouldn't fall apart as the wet cardboard. Well, they did some dating on it. They did carbon dating. They also found some piece shards of pottery in it and around it, some other things that they were to date it. And believe it or not, this boat is from about the 100 years right there, plus or minus, that Jesus lived and walked in the area of Galilee, right in that same area. And it matches, actually, the biblical descriptions we see in the gospel of the kind of boats that Peter and others would have used that Jesus would have ridden on. Now, not saying this is the boat that you know, Jesus was, was riding in across the, the Sea of Galilee. Probably wasn't. The odds probably are likely that this wasn't the boat, but it could have been. It certainly was a boat that would have been on the Sea of Galilee right around the time of Jesus. This is one of my favorite things to go see in Israel. And I said, opportunity to go. We're actually planning a trip for 2020. We'll tell you more about that as we go. So if you've always wanted to go to Israel, got your chance coming up about a year, a year and a few months from now, late spring 2020. Now, why do I start with this boat? Uh, when I saw this boat, and I didn't know that was, that, that, that was there the first time I went. I was almost in tears when I was around this boat. And I'm like, why was I in tears? I don't exactly know. But think about how rare it is to find anything, like a coin or any kind of piece of metal from the time of Jesus is rare. But to find wood, think about that, wood that had been preserved 
under this mud for 2,000 years ago. And something that was such a common object in that day that Jesus would have been familiar with, that literally, you know, stories of the fishing boats and Jesus on the boat and catching the fish and calming the storm was right there in this place. And this would have been one of the boats. I mean, just right, right like it. It brought me to tears, honestly. And as I thought more about that, and by the way, I've got one more picture to show. Go ahead and put that one up there. This will give you an idea of scale. You know, so you can see it next to a guy. Now, I don't know if that guy is just in awe of the boat or if he's about to sneeze, but, you know, (laughs) it gives you an idea of the scale. It's about 30 feet wide, or long, rather, and seven feet wide. 30 feet long, seven feet wide. Uh, Would have had a crew of five people. You could imagine three or four others being in there. So, you know, when it says that the the boats went across the the sea, it's the boats, the 12 disciples and Jesus, 13 at least would have been traveling. They would have had two boats possibly three boats. Um, We think about these huge boats. They were small. Makes a little more sense when the fish are in and the boat starts to sink or when the storm comes up. You know, it's just a lake, but the storm comes up. It's going to cause a boat about that size to sink pretty easily. Jesus calling the storm, et cetera. Now, here's why I think that I had an emotional response when I was standing next to this boat. To me, this boat is symbolic of the moment in time that Carthy read a few minutes ago when a group of fishermen abandoned their boats to follow Jesus, and they literally left them. They left their boat, and so 2,000 years later, we find an abandoned fishing boat in the mud of the Sea of Galilee, a trophy to God's call on these men's lives to change their vocation, to change their profession, to change their identity from fishing for fish to fishing for men. Now, I was thinking about this this week as I I thought about 2019 in, in front of us. And I thought about that one decision, these fishermen's lives to abandon their boats, that one decision changed the course of their lives and in many ways changed the course of human history. Okay, these are men now that we name our kids after. Peter, Andrew, James, John. All right. These are men that shaped the early church. These are men that entire countries, you know, have been in cities have been named after. It, they changed the course of history, their decision to give up fishing and following Jesus. So then I got me thinking about my 2019 and, I, and it made me think of this question. Is there a decision that I could make this year that I'd look back on later in my life and say 2019 was the year when? And that decision I made in 2019 made all the difference. And it started making me think about you. Is there a decision you could make that you'd look back later on and say, 2019 was the year I decided to? Now, here's where it gets to our text. There will be no decision you could ever make that would be more life-giving for you than a decision to follow Jesus. For some of you, for the very first time, for many of you, a closer walk with Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what it would look like for us to take a big step forward individually and corporately in following Jesus in 2019 to the degree that we would look back years later and say 2019 was the year when I really started following Jesus in some significant way. Or when I turned my eyes from that to him. Or when I made this decision with my resources. Or when I made this decision with my time. When I made that decision with my vocation. All in response to a call of Jesus. 2019 could be that year. Let's dive into the text, and then we're going to apply it. Um, 
This is one of my favorite stories in the scripture. There's a personal reason why I'll share with you in a few minutes, but, but first let's dig into the verses that Carthy read for us already. We'll start in verse 18. This is Matthew chapter four, verse 18. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, what Matthew doesn't tell us that other gospels do is that this was likely not the first time that Jesus had encountered these men. Matthew does not include the miracle of the, the catching of the fish. Luke does, other gospels do. So what you wanna do when you read the gospels is you read them all together and you can get a fuller expression. No one gospel tells everything that happened in the life of Jesus. You know, even collectively, all four of them, you know, uh, you couldn't fit all, and John talks about you couldn't fit all the things that Jesus did even in a library of books, right? But we have pieces of what happened in Jesus' life. So if you piece Matthew and Luke together, what you find is that Jesus encountered these men fishing originally. They weren't catching anything. Jesus does a miracle. Their boat fills with fish. Peter instantly knows this guy is someone special. He falls on his face before Jesus. And now at some point subsequent to that, might've been the next day, might've been a week later, might've been a month later, Jesus calls them to follow him. And this time, they're in the middle of casting their net. So that's the first note. This is not the first time that Jesus had met them. The next note is I want to take a look at the very unusual command he gives them in verse 19. Take a look at verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now there's a couple of things in this verse that stand out. Number one, it was not unusual for a teacher or a rabbi to have disciples followers. It was unusual for the teacher to choose his disciples rather than the disciples choosing a teacher. So think about this, and this was true in Jewish society, in Greek culture, true to us today. If you have a, a, a teacher, a wise person, think about a professor, every, every college has those four or five professors that all the kids want to spend time with, and they like set up lunches with them, and they you know, fill up their, their office hours, and they're, you know, they're kind of disciples, they're followers of that teacher. Good teachers, academic context, religious context, they tend to attract followers. But rarely, never in Jewish culture would a rabbi go to someone that's not an aspiring rabbi, like a fisherman, for example, and say, I want you to be my apprentice. I want you to be a follower of me. I want you to be one of my disciples. So that was very unusual. And notice the way he calls them. I love this. I will make you fishers of men. Now, I've never liked that phrase because I don't, I'm not a fisherman, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know, even really know how to catch fish and stuff like that. You know, I think worms are slimy and, and things like this. I just turned in my man card, I guess. But um, for me, that wouldn't work. Like Jesus would never come to me and say, Rob, I'm going to make you a fisher of people. I'd be like, what are you talking about? But these guys, that's what they needed to hear. He was using this metaphors because it's what they're familiar with. So in other words, it was as if Jesus was saying this, I want to take what you're already passionate about and I want to redirect it for eternal value. You're focused on catching fish to build a life, to make money, to feed your family and run a little business. Nothing wrong with that. I want to direct you from fish to people, from something temporal to something eternal, but I'm going to use what you're already good at. You're fishermen. I'm going to invite you to fish for something greater. 
the idea and the application for us is what would it look like for Jesus to call you in an area of passion that you already have, in an area of skill that you already have, to redirect your self-centered expression of that passion into an eternal, eternally focused passion. You see the difference? It doesn't necessarily mean that you quit your job and go over here, but it might. But it might just mean you use these skills, you use these experiences, you go out and apply, you apply them in some way for the glory of God. You do a both and. You know, there's all kinds of things. This was my story. My story is not everybody's story. But my story was I was in a corporate um, job working for Chick-fil-A corporate. Loved my job, loved the company, life was good, had one young child, marriage, you know, had a plan for a lake house someday, you know, saving the money, and you know, it was I was gonna make a lot of money. One of the things that I was good at and had some energy and passion for was teaching. And that's where I was kind of gravitating in the Chick-fil-A ecosystem was, was a teacher. I was being asked to teach more and more. And then I felt God calling me to use my passion for teaching in a different realm. So in 2006 was my leave the nets, leave the boat. And I went to seminary. That's my story, not your story. But for some of you in the room, I'm telling you, 2019 is going to be the year that God's going to call you to take an area of skill or interest or passion and just redirect it, either 90 degrees or for some of you, just four or five degrees, but in a way that's eternally focused. That's going to happen for some of you this year. I'm excited about that for you. Next observation, it wasn't just an invitation to a short trip or journey. It was an invitation to a completely new life, an invitation to a completely new life. Uh, these men literally changed vocations. It's not necessarily true for all of you. It won't be true for all of you. It was true for these disciples. Uh, notice what they left behind. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Now, you know, this is still talking about the first two, Peter and Andrew. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Uh, then verse 21 talks about the next two. Um, you've got you know, the two sons of, of Zebedee, James and John, and then skip down to 22. Look what James and John left. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So it's interesting the way that Matthew writes this is he's talking about the first two brothers and you know they, they, they left a boat too, by the way. They would have had a boat. But it focuses on the nets and then the next two it goes to the boat and the next it goes to the father. It's, it's actually building an increasing significance and increasing value. See, it's one thing to leave a net. A net was of some value. You had to have a net to catch fish. It's another thing to leave a boat. That was big value. It's a whole other thing to leave your father. Now, this wasn't talking about a relational um, break. This was talking about a vocation break. In that day and age, you became whatever your father was. So these sons of Zebedee were fishermen because their father was a fisherman. And he was, he was apprenticing them in his business and he, they were gonna run the business when he passed away. He was the patriarch. That's how their culture worked. It's like uh, you know, driving on the road and you see a big moving truck and it's like you know, you know, John and Sons moving company. And I always in the back of my mind think, I wonder how the Sons feel about that. You know, John and Sons. And then you know, sometimes you see the S you know, crossed off. You know, it's John and Son. You're like, oh, I guess you can see how one of them felt. But here's the idea. 
the, the vocational relationship to the father as a man in that culture was your, not only your livelihood and your income, your hope for the future, it was also your cultural identity. Who were James and John? Oh, the sons of Zebedee. James and John, sons of Zebedee. That, you know, that was their identity. They're leaving that. So you see this progression, the nets, the boat, the father. This was a complete and utter life change for these men. Now, at that moment in time, these men had no idea what lie ahead of them. Like they, they couldn't possibly understand how much it was going to cost them. Now, they'd already cost them a lot, but that was just the beginning. It would eventually cost them their lives. So they could not foresee how much it would cost them, nor could they foresee how much it would gain them. They had no idea how their lives were going to change. They just knew their lives were going to change. Now, I was thinking about this, um, this break because we decided to watch all three of the Lord of the Rings movies over the, uh, the holiday. Now, you didn't do it back to back. Like, that's like nine-hour suicide there. But we, we, did, it, we did do it um, like one day at a time. So like day one, day two, day three. And uh, our girls had never watched them. And about, you know, halfway through the first movie, I was like, you know, what have I done to my girls? Like, these orcs are just nasty, you know? It's like a lot more intense than I remembered it when I watched it 10 years ago. Uh, but one thing that I, I remember when I watched the first movie and you see the first scenes with Frodo, you know, this is before he goes on the journey or even in the very first few scenes of his journey with the ring, is he says yes to this and he has no idea what he's going to go through. I mean, he almost dies like 43 times. I mean, I'm not kidding you. And when he comes back, he's not the same person that he was, and not just in good ways, right? Now, he's, he's, he's transformed in powerful and important ways, but he has a little spring in his step in the beginning that he doesn't at the end, right? He does not know what it's gonna cost him. He also doesn't know what glory is going to be exhibited through him. Peter, James, Andrew, John, to this day, although they didn't pursue fame, they're some of the most famous men that have ever lived. Churches named after them, cities named after them. You know, we've already talked about this. People named after them. They would all point it to Jesus. But here's the idea. At that moment in time, they had no idea what it was going to cost them. They had no idea what it was going to gain for them. Life itself was waiting for them. All they knew at this moment was the one who had commanded the fish to jump into the nets was now commanding them to follow him. That's all they knew. Now, I told you why this story is significant in my own life for a couple different reasons. Um, you know, certainly, I think about my decision to, to leave a corporate vocation, and I relate that. But even more, even more importantly or powerfully, when I was a teenager, probably 15 years old or so, I was a Christian I was a believer, but I didn't know what it meant to really take my relationship with God seriously. And it was, to me, it was go to church and be good and believe in Jesus. And I believed in Jesus. Go to church, be good, believe in Jesus. Okay. Now, two things happened to me. Number one, um, a guy came alongside me who was a college student that volunteered with our youth group. And he just kind of took me under his wing and started discipling me. He taught me how to write out my prayers in a journal that, that totally revolutionized the way that I prayed. I just wrote to God like I was writing him a letter. And for me, that worked more than just trying to close my eyes and be undistracted. 
But the second thing that happened right about that time is my older sister, Kimberly, who attends this church, she gave me a CD. It was the first CD that I ever owned. It was 1990 or 1991. The CDs were brand new. And I just gotten a CD player for Christmas. And my first CD was Stephen Curtis Chapman's album, For the Sake of the Call. Okay, some of you are old enough to remember this. All right, this was back in his mullet days, okay? <laughs> That's the first time I'd ever heard of that guy. First time I'd ever heard of Christian music in general, other than, you know, what we sang at church, which they didn't really have worship. It was hymns, you know, based back then. And uh, I want to read you the lines of the very first song, the opening song, which is the title song of the album, For the Sake of the Call. He's writing about this story. Empty nets lying there at the water's edge told a story that few could believe and none could explain. How some crazy fishermen agreed to go where Jesus went with no thought for what they would gain. For Jesus had called them by name and they answered we will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. And I remember just hearing this music, you know, and, and thinking to myself, there is something that God is calling me to that's deeper than my shallow religious experience and my high school trying to fit in experience. There is something that God is calling me to in this discipleship, following Jesus thing that I don't know anything about yet. And, and honestly, do they write music like that anymore? You know, songwriters in the room. Let, let's write some discipleship songs, all right? Let's, let's, let's do this. I don't think they write music like this anymore. That whole album just kind of worked in me this passion for following Jesus that it took years for me to really figure out what it really meant for me, but it stirred in me something, and it was related to this story and related to this text. Now, from one perspective, these fishermen are making a very irrational decision. Are they not? Very irrational. From another perspective, it's the most natural thing in the world to do because the one who is life himself called them to him. Let me explain this. Track, track with me down, down this path real quick. What do these men want in life prior to meeting Jesus? Well, they want a life, right? They want a livelihood. They want a family. They want to make a little money. They want comfort for themselves. They want food. They're fishermen. They're building a life. They're seeking life. You are designed to seek life. That's what you've been doing. 2018 for you was all about seeking life. Some of you are finding it in academics. Some of you are finding it in your hobbies. Some of you are finding it in relationships. Some of you are seeking it in comfort. Some of you are seeking it in entertainment. Some of you are seeking it in your ambition. You're seeking life according to what your picture of life looks like. That's all these men were doing. Jesus comes along and he just says, look, real life is not over here with the fish. Real life's here with me, Jesus says. And they'd seen the fish obey this guy. They're like, he's who he says he is. He's life incarnate. Makes all the sense in the world for them to give up this pursuit of small life for that pursuit of real life. You see? Now, I want to fast forward to the end of Jesus' ministry. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. We're not going to put this on the screen, but, but I just read to you some of the very first words Jesus said to these men. Now I want to read to you some of the very last words that Jesus said to these men. And we're going to connect the dots and apply it to us. Here's what Jesus says. He's resurrected at this point. He's about to ascend into heaven and leave them alone. 
okay? Not leave them alone, but bodily leave them by themselves, and then his spirit will come. But look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Here's where it comes full circle. And this is why I like reading Matthew 4 and then Matthew 28. All right, because Matthew 4, Jesus says, come be a disciple. Matthew 28, he says, come make disciples. Come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Over here, he's saying, now it's time to go fishing. Now's your opportunity. You see, Jesus has discipled them for three years, and now he's letting them be the ones who are going to disciple others. Are they going to make disciples of themselves? Oh, no. Disciples of Jesus. Who are they going to make disciples of Jesus? Only all the nations. Did they complete that task in their lifetime? Oh, no. They were martyred 10, 15, 20, 30 years after this moment. Who picked up the banner? The next generation. Did they reach the ends of the world? Every nation? Oh, no. Who picked up the banner? The next generation and the next generation and on and on and on. Here we are in 2019 in Franklin, Tennessee, like the, the very ends of the earth compared to Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. This is where we come in. Okay, we're part of all the nations. The baton is now passed to us. We are the only ones with the privilege to follow Jesus in this time and this place. We're it. Our mission at Fellowship is to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. With the time I have left, I want to talk about what that means for us individually and corporately. And, and I want to spend most of my time on what it means for you individually. Like in 2019, I, I titled this message, you know, not very creative, but it's following Jesus in 2019. Like that's what we're called to do. And let me start off by saying this. If you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, all right, then from a positional standpoint, your relationship with God is established, it's constant, it's unchanging. You are blameless in your relationship with God no matter what you did yesterday, what you've already done this morning, even what you're gonna do tomorrow and the next day. Positionally, you cannot get more blameless because it's not about you, it's through the blood of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, to put your faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus for you. Now, however, your walk with God can and will vary. Your walk with God can and will vary, and, and it will vary on a spectrum. And in this room right now, we have both ends of the spectrum represented and a whole lot of in the middle. On one end of the spectrum, your walk with God is hardly a conscious part of your life. You think about God occasionally, maybe Sundays. You know, it's just, it's, you're, you're, you're just doing other things. And like, it's like, I guess I'm kind of on autopilot in my walk with God. And that's just kind of where you are. And there's really no, not a lot of life in it for you right now. Like you're, you're hoping for the life to come. You believe in that. But for right now, it's just not a big part of your life. On the other end of the spectrum, your walk with God can be, and for some of you, is the most important and life-giving thing of your life. Spectrum, where you are in the spectrum, 
is mostly up to you. I'm not talking about your eternal security and your salvation. That's firm and established in Jesus. I'm talking about your walk. I'm talking about how are you following Jesus? Where are you seeking life from? Because those of you that are down here on this other end of the spectrum, and, and I, I live there, I've lived there, I still do live there some days, sometimes. Those of us that are on this down here end of the spectrum, we're seeking life from something. It's just not Jesus. Those of you on this end of the spectrum, which honestly is where we all would desire to be, you're finding life. What kind of life are you finding? Real life, actual life, wholehearted life in Jesus. Now, I want to say this. I happen to believe following Jesus in our culture right now is really hard. Is really, and some of you are thinking, what do you mean, Rob? We got it easy. You know, we've got access to 18,000 translations of the scriptures and Bible apps and Christian music and bumper stickers and all this stuff. And, and, and I want to say that maybe some of that gets in the way. Maybe some of that gets in the way. Um, I, we probably won't face martyrdom, but who knows in our lifetime, okay? For these men, they face martyrdom and women, all right? We probably won't. So how can I say it's hard to follow Jesus? I'm not saying it's harder for us than it was for them, but I want to say it's hard. I want to tell you why it's hard is because we have been discipled, just not by Jesus, most of us. Most of us, we've been discipled by powerful cultural forces, that have created a lifestyle that makes it inherently difficult to follow Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by this. Think about our lifestyles, okay? Think about how we live, by and large, okay? And this is not just the culture out there, this is the culture that we're a part of. We are busy, we are. We tend to be individualistic, and by that I mean we're, we're more tuned in to, to me rather than we. We're busy, we're individualistic. We're consumer-driven, okay? We're seeking life through market exchanges, okay? That's what it means to be consumer-driven. You can't live in our culture and not be consumer-driven. Like, you, you can't. You can't exist here. You can't. And fourth, we're comfort-obsessed. And, and, and those are all true, okay? Now, busy, individualistic, consumer-driven, comfort-obsessed. Those describe Rob Sweet. Okay, that, those describe me. What I want to say is it's hard to love God and love people when you're busy, individualistic, consumer-driven, and comfort-obsessed. Because if you're busy, you don't have time for people. Honestly, you don't. If you're individualistic, you don't really care about people. If you're consumer-driven, you will view people only for what they can give you and what they have to offer you, and you're just exchanging things with them and your relationships, if you think about it that way. And finally, if you're comfort-obsessed, you will not want to sacrifice for the sake of other people. Now, that's just true, okay? And I think step one is sort of naming this soil that we're planted in that squeezes out in us a strong ability to love God and love other people well, which is the core of following Jesus. It's the great commandment. Love God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's hard to love in that kind of cultural environment. So how might we, in 2019, take a step forward 
in this. What does it look like to follow Jesus in 2019? I'm finally getting to like the, the big aha, the message, okay? I don't know how much of an aha it is. Uh, let me just say it because I'm running out of time. There's two things, two things for how I think we can pattern our lives after Jesus in 2019. Two things we have to do. And, and, and none of them are easy, okay? But I want us to encourage you how you can take a step toward them. Um, embody his teaching and prioritize his priorities. And I'm gonna unpack them both, okay? They don't sound like much at the beginning, but they're, 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 they're pretty hefty. Embody his teaching, prioritize his priorities. What do I mean by embody his teaching? Look, everybody in this room knows more about the teaching of Jesus than most people in the world. I mean, you just do. I don't care if you haven't been to church in three years and you just come back. I mean, you could probably name some things that Jesus said. You know, you're probably familiar with some teaching, at least from the, the, the um, Sermon on the Mount, etc. Our problem for a lot of us is not that we don't know what Jesus taught, it's that we don't live what Jesus taught. We either don't know how to or, or, or we just aren't for various reasons, I think, that are related to these four busy, individualistic, consumer-driven, and comfort-obsessed. So I was having a conversation with my brother a few years ago. My brother was two years younger than me. At the time, he was a worship pastor in Virginia. We were talking about how hard it is to pastor in our day and age and different things and even sin in our own lives and different things. And, and I said, Brian, I think the root problem is people just don't know their Bibles anymore. You know? And yes, excuse me, I think that's true. I really do. But then here's what my brother said. He goes, he goes, well, that may be a problem, but I think a bigger problem is they know their Bibles we're just not living our Bibles. And he said, can you imagine if everybody that called themselves a Christian just took the Sermon on the Mount seriously and tried to live it out? Like, can you imagine? So I'm not saying forget your book knowledge and just focus on application. It's gotta be a both and. And that's why we focus here at Fellowship, Lord willing, on both and. We wanna teach you God's word as best as we can. We wanna dive deep into this thing. And we're gonna say, so what? Near the end. We're gonna call you to live it out. We don't wanna just know God's word, we wanna live God's word. We wanna embody God's word. So in the, the great commandment, Jesus says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Not teaching them the theology only. Teach them what I said and to obey what I said. That's what we're gonna be about here as a church. You're gonna find that in our sermons. You're gonna find that in the way we're gonna structure our small groups and any other classes that you're a part of. It's about knowing God's word and living God's word. It's about embodying the word of God. Think about this. When you embody God's word in your homes for your family to see, in your neighborhoods and schools for your neighbors to see, in your workplaces for your coworkers to see, you are following Jesus because Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the word embodied. And now you're called to be God's word embodied, you see. We've got to live it out. We've got to embody his teaching. That's number one. That's number one. Um, I'll, I'll come to a practical step you can take in a minute on that. Number two, prioritize his priorities. Like, how can we claim to follow someone when we're not about the same things he's about. Like that, that boggles my mind. It's like, well, I believe in Jesus. You that mean you follow him? I guess. I get, well, how do I follow him? Well, actually embody his teaching and prioritize his priorities. What were Jesus' priorities? People, particularly the lost, the marginalized, those on the edges of society. Number two, his priority was the kingdom of God. And not just go to heaven someday when you die, but he actually was giving glimpses of God's rule on earth 
That's what the miracles were all about. That's why his compassion was all about, pointing people to a time and a place where all will be right in himself. The third thing he was all about, in addition to people in the kingdom of God, he was all about his relationship with his father. Spending time alone to pray, spending time alone to talk to God, trusting, obeying his father. That's what Jesus, those are his priorities. People, the kingdom of God, relationship with the father. Y'all, those aren't my priorities most of the time. I bet they're not your priorities most of the time. You know, this is not a drive-by guilting. This is a call to follow Jesus closer in 2019 than you did in 2018. Embody his teaching, prioritize his priorities. We want to help you do that. Pull out this little, um, what do we call this? Handout. You should have gotten it when you came in. If you didn't get one, get one on the way out. Um, that's okay. You can hold those page. Some of you got them. Some of you can get them on the way out. This is a recap of our vision series. We handed you this a couple months ago. We've updated a couple of the words. The content is still really the same. And I'm not gonna go through the whole thing, but I wanna show you how we're gonna call you this year to take a step forward in following Jesus. If you open up to the center, you see our mission here. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. An explanation here of what we mean by that on these two pages. On this right page over here, there are four characteristics of wholehearted life in Jesus. If you wanna know what does wholehearted life in Jesus look like, the answer is it's a renewed mind, healthy relationships, a satisfied soul, and an active faith. And so what we're literally doing is we're picking one of those to start, out, to start with this year, and it's active faith. That's why we've chosen the book of James. James is all about living out what you believe. James is all about an active faith. Don't just be hearers of the word, James says. Be doers of the word. That's why we've chosen the book of James for this series. We're going to focus on that quadrant of our hearts, active faith. Turn to the back. This is how we grow. In the series in the fall, we call this our strategy map. A better term for it because it names what it really is. This is our discipleship pathway. This is how we're going to grow. Not grow numerically, you know, God does that. This is how we're all going to grow personally. And so there's four environments. There's two squares, two circles. The two squares are fellowship venues where we're going to provide teaching, content, organization for you. That's your church and your group. I want to call you to take a step in one or more of these areas and make a decision today. I mean, this goes to what Paige was talking about earlier. You know, some of you aren't in a group. Get in a group. You can't follow Jesus as a loner. You can't do it. Get in a group. Learn to love people in a group and be a little bit less individualistic. How are you going to do that? In a group. Some of you need to make that decision. Some of you need to decide, hey, I'm gonna actually start attending church every week. You know? And by the way, that's not about the ego of the teacher. That's not about money and the offering. That's about God calls us to gather together and worship and love each other and learn from his word. All right, and if you're a, uh, I go once or twice a month kind of person, if you're able to be here every week unless you're sick or out of town, you will be surprised how much you'll grow just from that step. If you're not serving on Sundays or Wednesday night, take that step, as Paige told you about earlier. Those are the, th the things we're gonna ask of you, your church, your group. Then these two circles on the side, your walk in your world, that's what you're called to 365 days a year. Your walk, it's your personal walk with God, what we've been talking about this morning, following Jesus, embody his teaching, prioritize his priorities, got to spend some time with him 
in order to do that. And then this last one over here, your world, what are you gonna do this year to engage other people where you live, where you work, where you play, and some of you to the ends of the earth. So here's how we're gonna close our service. In a minute, we're gonna sing a song. Before we do, I'm gonna lead us in a guided prayer around those four things, your church, your group, your walk, your world. And I'm gonna allow some space in my prayer because I believe God wants us, many of you in the room, to make a decision in one of those four things that you'll look back on at the end of the year and say, 2019 was the year when I got in a group. I really decided to be a part of this church. I engaged my world with this relationship. I took my walk with God seriously and started spending time with him. Whatever that is, you see, there's all kinds of things that can fit in those four categories. So let me pray for you and for us, and then we'll sing together. Our Father, I do thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word this morning in this very simple story of these four men being called by your son Jesus and just making that instantaneous radical decision to, to seek life. Uh, I don't know if they would have even felt it as a sacrifice because they're so convinced that Jesus was life and he's the one they wanted to be with. And God, would you do that in us? Like whatever we feel like, oh, I don't know if I can sacrifice. Would you help us to not even see it as a sacrifice because we would just be so enthralled by the beauty of the one who is life itself. And so Jesus, as I pray through these four categories, I pray that through your spirit, you would call individuals in this room, not too dissimilarly than how you called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that, that for some in this room, even today, like literally today, they would say, I think God has called me to something. And then that they would take a step to obey. So first church we wanna focus on your church. This gathering on Sundays, and, and for those of you that are students, Wednesdays. Some of you in the room need to make a decision to not just attend church as a consumer, but actually be a part of this church as a part of the family of this church. Some of you need to decide to start coming more often to grow. Some of you need to decide to start serving. Would you be open to that? Uh, some of you, you're already here every week, you're already serving, but honestly, you're, you're doing it in kind of a, an individual, selfish way. Would, would you be willing to, to lift your head on Sunday mornings to other people and say hello and, and engage them a little bit more? Would you be willing to say, I not only want to hear the message each week, but I want to actually apply something. I want to actually move. I want to put this to use in my life. Whatever it is that God would call you to, I'll just give you a few moments of space for him to speak to you in this category, your church. Now for some in the room, there's something that God wants to call you to in relationship to a group. I want to talk first to those of you that are already in a group. Um, it could be that God would say, what would it look like for you to love the people in your group a little bit deeper than you have up to this point? What would it look like for you to, to weekly walk into that group, not thinking, what am I going to get out of this, but, but what can I give to someone that's here that, that needs what I have to say or offer or, or, or just hear from them? 
Some of you in the room are not in a group. And there's, there's a lot of reasons. I know for some, it's a big challenge for you to get in a group. But would you ask God, God, would you provide for me a group that I could be a part of so that my walk with God is a little less alone? Would you be open to how he might answer that? I'll give you some space for the, those things right now. next want to focus on our walk with God. I I know there's nobody in the room that would say, I am exactly where I want to be and need to be in my walk with God. Nobody would say that. There is more life to be had in our walk with God. What would it look like for you this year? Is, Is it spending time in God's word, allowing him to speak words of life to you in a more regular basis? Is it making prayer more of a priority? Is it starting to to journal your prayers in in a way that'll make them come alive to you a little bit? Is it coming alongside and and asking for help in your walk? What would it be? How can you take a step of following Jesus this year? I want to leave just a few moments for God to speak to you in that area. Finally, I want us to pray together just for a minute about our world. You know, God has put us here for very specific purposes. Like we are the ones that he's called in 2019 to follow him. Right? We, we don't get to follow him in AD 30, but they don't get to follow him in 2019. He's called us to this and, and not just this year, but this place and the neighborhood that we're in and the school that we're in and the work that we're in and the, and the commute that we drive and the stores that we visit and the people we rub shoulders with. Would you be willing, Fellowship Bible Church, to just be open to, to God to just point your gaze in the direction of one or two people in your life that you would engage this year? And, and even if you don't feel like you have anything to give, Jesus is going to do that through you as you follow him. Would you be open to that this year to engage your world for God's glory? Let's just ask him right now. Finally, Father, we recognize that without hearts that are finding life in Jesus, there is no chance for us to be used by you in this culture in the way that you would desire. So I pray that our own hearts would grow. I pray that our our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, and our choices would begin to be integrated, that we would be finding life in Jesus as we come together on Sundays and Wednesday nights and then throughout the week in small groups as we focus on our walk, as we engage our world. Would this be the kind of church that by your grace and by the leading of your spirit, we would see Christ move through in some significant ways in this year? You can do that, God. And without any pride, just in humility, just say, for the sake of your glory, would you? Would you do that through us collectively as a group? We ask that in the great name of Jesus.